And open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John. We're in the first chapter. And these first 18 verses in chapter 1 are often called the prologue. And they are an introduction to the entire Gospel. The major themes that we'll see in the Gospel as we go through it over the next several months are at least represented in these first 18 verses in such a way. And so this introduction is incredibly important for us to grasp. And some of what you'll hear in the prologue, if you have a real good memory, you'll hear again later down the road as we look at individual chapters where these truths are fleshed out for us in such a way that we hear again what the writer John is saying to us. So in these first 18 verses, there are six presentations to us about the incarnate Word, Jesus, who is God, who came to this earth as a baby in the form of flesh and blood, who was always God and yet still fully man, and He revealed Himself to us. And so in the first few verses, the first presentation that we see is the eternal Christ, that He is preexistent, He was in the beginning, and if you remember, that time did not exist until the world was created. There is a point back in the beginning where time did not exist, and it is the beginning of the beginnings, and God was there, and with Him was the Godhead, Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is preexistent. He is eternal, just as the Father is eternal. He is in fellowship with God, is what John would tell us. And that means that He stands face to face in an intimate relationship and communication of the same essence, looking in a mirror, if you will, at Himself in the face of the Father. Jesus is Himself God. He is not God's little brother. He's not God's Son per se. He is God in the fullest sense that we would say the Father is God. Notice that He's also a powerful Christ. He is given credit for creation. Nothing that was made has been made without Him. John is very repetitive in that. Jesus is giving credit for being the Creator of the world, and as such, He is the owner of all that He has created. Not only the physical cosmos that you and I live in, but our lives particularly belong to Him, and even more so for those who have given their lives to Christ in a saving relationship. You were bought with a price, Therefore, we are to honor our God with our bodies. The second presentation that we have is the incarnate Christ. God, Jesus is self-existent. In Him is life. He contains life. He's the source of life. He gives life. In Him is life. And that life is the light of men. And that light of Christ that is in you and I, the light of Christ that is in Him, shines throughout the dark world. And the darkness cannot overpower it. The darkness cannot overcome it. His light is always going to shine. The analogy is that no matter how dark a room might be, a small light will still dispel the darkness. Isn't that right? And so Jesus is the light of the world and He dispels the darkness that exists in this world and that darkness cannot overpower it. Those are the first two presentations that we have. We're going to look at a couple of others today. So read with me as we look at John chapter 1, verses 6-13 through 13, as we get introduced now to John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of Christ. Verse 6 begins, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now it's important for us to remember that John never refers to himself by his name in the Gospel. 
There are a couple of other Johns that are represented later on in the Gospel, but this John is John the Baptist. Verse 7, He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through Him and the world did not know Him. He came to His own and those who were His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's a lot in these verses that we're going to look at today. So the third presentation that we see here in the prologue is the introduction of the forerunner of Christ. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. This was going to be the one who was going to be the very first to proclaim the truth about who the light really is. The promised Messiah of the nation of Israel, the long-awaited one, has finally arrived. Now, in this context of the prologue, the introduction of John seems to be a very abrupt change. We're talking about the eternal God to the man that God sent, John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet predicted. Not since Malachi has the nation of Israel had a prophet to speak to them. If you remember from your history, there was a 400 year period of absolute silence where God was not speaking to His people. There was a lot of anticipation. There was a lot of despair. There was a lot of uncertainty. Where is God? Where is the Messiah? When will He ever come? Is He going to come in our lifetime? And so the introduction here of the man that God sent is incredibly important to the nation of Israel because John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets and he was predicted to play this role. In Malachi it says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And as we read through the Gospels and as we see this lived out to be true, we say, John certainly did predict the coming, and made the way of the coming of the Lord. In the Gospel of Matthew, we see the reference to what Isaiah said about this predicted prophet. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, "...the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make His path straight." This is exactly what John was going to do. We see the prophecy predicted about John in the Gospel of Luke when... Mary's cousin Elizabeth was pregnant, and we read this in Luke chapter 1, but the angel said to him, Zacharias, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. When you, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. 
What an incredible privilege John had to be called by God to be the one that was going to say, get ready, the Messiah is on the way. John had an enormous impact on the people because of this long silence where God wasn't speaking to them. When he arrived on the scene, everybody noticed. We read this in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Now, when you see the word all, it doesn't actually mean every single person. It is representative of an incredibly large number of people who were going to John, who were hearing his message, and who were being baptized in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Now, I would venture that if you and I were to have a John the Baptist-looking individual come into our fellowship today, we would say, who is that character? Because you know, John lived in the wilderness. And he fed himself on locusts and wild honey. And I would imagine that he was as different as the hippie movement was back in the late 60s and the 70s. When people would see individuals who are so different that they go, what is that guy's deal? So here comes John the Baptist. He is a prophet predicted. Number two, John the Baptist was a prophet proclaiming. Verse 7. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Him. Now, here's one of the questions that we should ask ourselves. How did John know to be a witness? How did John know what to testify about? Because there's no indication that Jesus and John hung out in the wilderness and spent lots of time together and kind of talked through the strategy of how they were going to make their entrance into the world Well, you see, John knew because God filled him with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. And so John's primary purpose was to be a witness to the light. These words here, witness and testify, are legal terms that relate to fact, not opinion. When you go into a court of law and you are a witness, you are to tell the facts as they are, not as you think they should be, or as you hope they might be, but you give witness to and you testify about the truth that you have observed. John's witness then is not his opinion about the light, but his testimony is factual regarding the light. All that he did was in response to this fact And his ministry was for the purpose of exposing others to the truth of who the light was. The last half of verse 7 says, So that all might believe in the light through John's witness and testimony. That doesn't mean that all are going to be saved. But it means that all are going to know the facts. They are going to know the truth as John is going to proclaim it to them. Thirdly, John was a prophet pointing Verse 8, He was not the light, but He came to testify about the light. Now, John is very careful here, and it seems a little bit repetitive to say in verse 8, to the same extent what he said in verse 7. But what you and I forget, and maybe we weren't aware of, is that John the Baptist had a huge following even after he was dead. Some 20 years later, after his death, we read in Acts chapter 19 that some were still devoted followers 
of John the Baptist. Church history tells us that well into the second century, there were John the Baptist loyalists who still listened to and heard and believed in John. And perhaps John really was the light. Is that really who John was? And so this is what the Gospel writer John wants to make incredibly clear, is that John is not the light. He came to testify and witness to the fact about who the light was. John's impact was profound. We read in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was not confused about who he was and who the light was. John was not concerned about his role as the forerunner of Christ. We'll read a little later in the third chapter of John. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Between the lines, aren't you threatened by that? Aren't you worried by that? Should we put a stop to that? And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. That was his role. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase... I must decrease. John knew exactly who he was and what he was supposed to do. He was not at all confused about who the true light was, nor was he concerned about the role that he played as second fiddle to the light. He considered it a great honor and his joy was made complete by being in that role. But he had such a strong and loyal following that John the Gospel writer wants to make clear that all of his readers will know that John, was, that John the Baptist was not the true light. He was a prophet sent by God to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah, but he himself was not that man. So we come now to the fourth presentation of Christ, and this is the unrecognized Christ. We'll see this in verses 9 through 11. The first thing we're going to see in this is that He, the light, Jesus, enlightens all. The light shines on all. That's what it means there. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, that does not mean that every man is going to be saved. It doesn't mean that He gives to every man the ability to respond to Him. There's two possibilities in how to understand this, and both of these are true within the Scripture. The first is this. It could mean that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God who has already revealed Himself in every human soul. So what we say is that God has made Himself, uh, He's made himself real to everybody through natural creation. Isn't that right? There's a general revelation in our world that something, someone had to create this. This is the revelation of God to Himself. But this could mean that Jesus is the fullest revelation of God and has revealed Himself in every human soul. This is what we read in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Hear that. 
Because that which is known about God is evident within them, that internal revelation that there is a God, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, not in a, in a saving relationship, but in an intellectual understanding that there is a God, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. It's what we would say today, that people look at this created world, and they say, wow, this is an amazing thing that has been made. I can't believe I can't understand, I can't explain how this was made, but I don't think it was a God. I don't think God did that because I don't believe there is a God. And that is the futile speculation that perhaps sometime way back in the beginning, there was an explosion. And everything that came into being came out of nothing. How does that happen? I don't know. But this is the point. God has made Himself real to everyone through His revelation... And Jesus is the fullest extent of that revelation to us. The alternate is that the phrase could mean that Jesus is God's self-disclosure in the most glorious way for every man who has ever seen Him or heard about Him or has read His story. So what that's saying is this, that there is an inner revelation that there is a God and Jesus is the external revelation of who that God is. As you've learned about Him, as you've read about Him, as John's readers had seen Him and experienced Him, this is the external revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. But here's what's important for us to know in this. Whether it means the internal revelation or it means the external revelation, even those who never give their lives to Christ who never become a child of God, are accountable for the knowledge of God and His light revealed in Christ. Why? Because He is the light of the world. He has shown His light on all of the world that He has created, on every man and on every woman, on every boy and girl. And I'm always moved by the story of Helen Keller. And if you know her story, she was born blind and she was born deaf. And through the work of a woman, I can't remember her name, I think Barbara something, taught her how to read and taught her how to speak. And the one thing Helen Keller said when she heard about the truth of Jesus, she said, I always knew there was a God, I just didn't know His name. That is the inner revelation that is born to be true through the external revelation through the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. Though we are all spiritually dead before we come to Christ, and because we are all spiritually blind by our sin, we are all still accountable for the knowledge of God revealed in creation and in conscience and in the life of Jesus Christ. So whether it is the inner testimony of God within every man or the external testimony of the life of Christ, His ministry, His death, His burial, and His resurrection, the light has been cast on every man. He enlightens all. Verse 10 reads, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. The creation didn't know the Creator. 
the creator of the world, the savior of the world, has come into the world that he has made, and the world has completely missed it. His sinless life, his teaching, his astonishing claim to be God, captured people's attention, but most still missed the reality of who he was. So there are some reactions to this light that has been cast on every man. Number one, some were superficial followers. Jesus fed the multitudes. He healed the sick. He cast demons out of those that were possessed. He even raised the dead. And if that doesn't create a following, I don't know what will. There were many who were superficial followers of Jesus, but they were unwilling to truly commit to him. We read this in John chapter 12. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers, the religious leaders, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So this exposes the superficiality that existed in some of the so-called disciples or followers of Christ in the days of His ministry. So some are going to be superficial followers. Some are openly hostile. There's no shortage of people who are openly hostile to Jesus and to God and to the Gospel message. A couple of references here. John 7.12 that we'll look at later. There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning Him, Jesus. Some were saying He is a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, He leads the people astray. Astray from what? From organized, legalistic, Pharisaic-driven religion. John 10.21 Others were saying these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, of the blind canny. And then Mark 3.22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. There was no shortage of hostility in Jesus' day, and I want to tell you, it's not changed in our day, and I'll make it emphatically clear, it will never change. Because people have decided that there is not a God, and if there is any hint of a God, I'm going to reject Him because I can't understand it, and I'm certainly not going to commit to it. And so you have these that are superficial and these that are hostile as followers of Christ. Thirdly, most just simply rejected who He was. He has come into the world that He has made as the light of the world, and the world has rejected Him. I think as we look in John 3, a little bit later down the road, we see a summarization of why this is true. This is the judgment. Not that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So most are going to reject Christ because we love our sin. We love being our own boss. We love determining our own way. We don't want to submit ourselves to some group of hypocrites or something that's going to require something of me that I don't want to be a part of, that I don't want to do. Whatever the reason, however it works out in the life of an individual, most are going to reject the gospel message. 
As tragic as it is that the creator of the world came into the world as the light and the savior of the world, and the world missed it, even more shocking is this, that Israel, God's own people, have openly rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And that's what verse 11 says. He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. The long-awaited Messiah, the fulfillment of nearly 2,500 years of prophecy and expectancy for the arrival of the Messiah, all that the prophets of old looked forward to, all of Israel's history pointed to the moment when the Messiah would come, and when He came, they didn't receive Him. There's a summary of this in the book of Acts. We read in verse two, verses, chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, Peter's very first sermon, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders, and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, meaning they saw those miracles, they couldn't deny the reality of those miracles, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless man and put Him to death. Today, if you are a faithful, orthodox, practicing Jew and someone in your family comes to Christ, they will say, you are dead to me. I do not know you. You are dead. Why? Because of the open hostility and rejection to the light of the world. He came into the world as the Savior of the world that He made. He came to His very own people, the only people that God ever said, that you are My people. And they rejected Him and completely missed the coming of the Messiah. Now, the fifth presentation of the Christ in the prologue that we're looking at is the saving Christ. We see this in verses 12 and 13. In spite of the indifferent followers, the superficial, in spite of those who are openly hostile towards Him and those who just simply reject Him, we see now the saving Christ. Verse 12, But, but as many as received Him, To them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. That little conjunction there is a very powerful transitional word. Meaning, not all are going to be superficial. Not all are going to be hostile. And not all are going to reject. Some, some will be granted the privilege of coming to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. The world's hatred of God and rejection of Christ in no way overrules or frustrates the plan of God. Think about that. As openly hostile as our culture is, and as overwhelmingly a rejection as our culture has given to God Himself, it in no way frustrates or overrules His plan. Some are going to receive Him. Jesus said... In John chapter 6, verse 37, I'm sorry, I missed this, receive, means to take hold of, to obtain, or to grasp. That's what it means to receive the Lord Jesus. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. 
When we receive the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't do that with our intellect. We do that with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. We commit our life to Him. People cannot be saved until they receive Him and believe in Him. But nonetheless, salvation is a sovereign work of God gifted to the dead and sin-filled individual that God miraculously and graciously awakens to know the truth about who He is. When you give your life to Christ, you are given the right to become the child of God. There's a common error in our world today, and you've heard me say this before. Just because we are all God's creation does not mean that we are all God's children. When we have been given the right to become the child of God, it indicates that we cannot become what we already are. Isn't that right? We can't become the child of God if we already are the child of God. So, His creation, only those who receive Him, to take hold of Him, obtain Him, grasp Him, will become His child. Those who receive and believe, verse 13 says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the introduction to the doctrine of election in the Gospel of John. I want you to hear what this says again. Born here means born of the Spirit. Made into the child of God. To be born again, as we will look at in John chapter 3, means it is a new spiritual life that has taken place in the One who has received Him. Those who receive Him are born of the Spirit. Now, to be born of the Spirit means that the Spirit is the One that has produced the birth. There's three negatives and a positive in this verse. So, those who were born not of blood, salvation is not obtainable through any racial or ethnic heritage as the Jews wrongly believed. And Paul would deal with this in the book of Romans. Not all who are descended from Abraham are of Abraham. Isn't that right? So, born of the Spirit, not of blood nor of flesh. Meaning there's not a personal desire that we can create that would enable us to respond to Him because we are spiritually dead and unable to respond. So we're born of the Spirit, not of blood, not of the flesh, a personal desire, nor of man. Any man-made system, any religious expression, any ceremony or any kind of moralism Flesh does not give birth to spirit. It cannot happen. And so we see the introduction here of the doctrine of election when it says, born not of the blood, not of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. Those who are born again, those who receive Him and become the children of God are born of God. God is the one that has begat the child of God who has received Him. We are saved by grace through faith, 
not of ourselves. It is a gift of God and not by works, so that no man can boast. We cannot produce anything of value spiritually in ourselves. We cannot birth anything spiritually when we ourselves are spiritually dead. And so this is the introduction of the doctrine of election in the Gospel of John. All bear the guilt of unbelief and rejection. So this phrase here means that salvation, receiving and believing in the Lord, is impossible for any sinner apart from the work of God. God must grant the power to believe supernaturally. And when belief has come, then the divine life and the light is given to the lifeless, those who are walking in darkness. So this great truth of election and sovereign grace is introduced appropriately in the prologue as the very foundation of the means of salvation. Thinking about what Tony said this morning as he read in Psalms and as he prayed, what you and I have in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ is a gift. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. We don't just happen to discover it. It is given to us supernaturally by the Lord Himself. We become the child of God because we are born of God. Think about the billions upon billions of people who have lived in this world, who have rejected Christ, And God has seen fit to allow you and I here today to know the truth that the one who is in the beginning of beginnings came into this world and we believe the truth about the light. If that is not a blessing to you, if that does not cause you to ponder the greatness of this God that we know, I really don't know what will. Because He's given to us the greatest thing anyone could ever receive, and that is eternal life. You know, one day our physical bodies will deteriorate and we will die, but our spirit will go on and live forever. And to die in this life apart from Christ is the most horrible thing that we can ever imagine. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me? Father, I pray that you would see in our hearts that we are not superficial followers of the light. Nor are we openly hostile, nor have we rejected you, but we have given ourselves to you with great thanksgiving in our hearts that you have allowed these dead and lifeless beings to know the truth, to be given eternal life, to have the hope that one day we will see you as you really are. And that hope isn't wishful thinking. It is confidence rooted in the truth of your word. God, I pray that as we think about this great gift that you've given to us, that you would bring to our minds the ways that we take that for granted, the ways that we don't give serious attention to that. We pray, Father, that through your Spirit working within us, that you would burden our hearts to repent and to give up those things that we know are not pleasing to you.
And maybe someone is here today that has never given their life to you. They know who you are intellectually. But they've been waiting and waiting and waiting. Father, would you speak to them? Would you remove the blinders from their eyes? Would you break up the fallow ground of their heart and enable them to respond to you today as Savior and as Lord? Father, do your work in us and through us that you desire for your glory, for your name's sake. We pray as your children and all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand as we sing a song of thanksgiving? <laughs>